Hello, you're tuned to Finding Truth Matters with Dr. Andrew Corbett. Welcome to the program. We're pleased to have you join us. And it's interesting that in Paul's early epistles, he refers to him as Jesus Christ. As time goes on, he refers to him as Lord Jesus Christ. And as time comes to an end, he refers to him as Christ Jesus Lord. In the New Testament of the Bible, we find that the Apostle Paul wrote a number of books, many as letters, even while he was imprisoned. Paul had a fatherly relationship with a young man named Timothy, and we have access to two letters to Timothy containing some valuable encouragement and instruction, valuable for our lives today. Tonight, Dr. Corbett continues in Paul's first letter to Timothy, speaking about spiritual warfare. Let's join Dr. Corbett now for part two in this series, Dear Timothy, Wage Good Warfare. If you have your Bibles, please turn to 1 Timothy chapter 1. I mentioned that one of the reasons this is so important is because this was Paul's last set of epistles, the last things that we know that he wrote. And when, I guess when you know this will be it, there's, that there's, there's not going to be anything else after this, you probably want to say something important. I find that intriguing. I find that... I find that uh, Epistles like Jude, Jude wrote his epistle just before he was martyred as well. It's one of the shortest epistles in the New Testament. Hmm. And yet it's, it's quite profound. And here we have Paul's epistles to Timothy. And it, it's essentially Paul writing, not just to, to Timothy, but to the Ephesian church. And the Ephesian church, you may have heard me say, is the most written to church in the New Testament. And you've got to ask the question, why would that be? Why would God choose to write these epistles to Ephesus? Ephesus, unlike some of the other churches like Corinth, and if we had a map, if you have a Bible map in the back of your Bible, you might see that we have Ephesus over here. Then we have, what is it, the Adriatic Sea here. And then we have Corinth over here. So it's, it's a, like a journey over this way. And Corinth was more or less an island of Greece, except it had a land bridge connected to it. And so Corinth was known, that area was known as Archaea, when you read it in your New Testament. That's what it's referring to, that region. Corinth had a a really, really huge temple to Aphrodite, and they had temple prostitutes there. And so to go to Corinth was considered to be a bit of a, a, a sleazy weekend, if we can put it that way. And the reason I mention those two places, giving you an idea that they weren't that far away by sea, is going to be made obvious, I hope, in in a moment. As we consider the last part of chapter one, this this is wage good warfare. And one of the reasons why I think what Paul is saying to Timothy is so important is because nearly every issue he raises, we are dealing with today. And... What I shared this morning, in in many respects, this is going to build on that because we won't be looking at, but I did mention that when it comes to how do you as a community encourage everyone in the community, especially in a place like Ephesus. Ephesus had its female goddess. Anyone know the name of the female goddess located in Ephesus? Diana, correct. And if you're a fan of Wonder Woman, it's that Diana. So... We have Diana, the temple worship of Diana. We also have the temple worship of Aphrodite in Corinth. Aphrodite being the goddess of love. 
So there's uh, some, some interesting parallels from these, these epistles for the sexual conduct of society today, the moral values, the moral compass, the abuse of women, and what you do with men in the church who are guilty of that. And of course, 1 Corinthians dealt with that. So this is wage good warfare. And I, wanna, I just want to talk about the foundations of the Ephesian church. This is, I think, pretty interesting because, again, I want to show you the connection between Corinth and Ephesus. We're, we're, we're in Acts 18. I'll, I'll have it on the screen. Acts chapter 18, verse 24. It says, Now a Jew named Apollos, a native of Alexandria, came to Ephesus. He was an eloquent man, competent in the scriptures. He had been instructed in the way of the Lord and being fervent in spirit, he spoke and taught accurately the things concerning Jesus, though he knew only the baptism of John. Hmm. How much of the gospel can you preach when you don't know the full story? Hmm. He began to speak boldly in the synagogue when Priscilla and Aquila this is a wife and husband in that order. And that's interesting. Isn't that interesting? You've got two cities where women are worshipped. The place of women was really interesting. We'll come to that in a moment. Priscilla and Aquila heard him. They took him aside and explained to him the way of God more accurately. Hmm. So here's the interesting thing. After being corrected in Ephesus, after Apollos, one of the greatest orators mentioned in the New Testament, Paul actually will say in writing to the Corinthians that Apollos was a much better preacher than him, far more eloquent than Paul ever was. And Paul actually apologises for his lack of ability to preach. I don't know that Paul ever set out to be a preacher, but God called him to be one. Apollos, on the other hand, was trained in the art of what's called rhetoric, which is the ability that, a, that they take a young person, they train them for years and years and years, how to talk persuasively to people, to sell ice to an Eskimo. That eloquence, that persuasiveness. It, he was called a rhetorician, someone who could use rhetoric or the ability to speak. But he, after he was corrected by Priscilla and Aquila, Apollos travelled, remember where he was? Where was he? He was in Ephesus, and now he just, he just goes across the water to Corinth. And when he wished to cross to Achaia, so there's that reference, the region, it's like saying uh, Hobart and Tasmania, so Corinth and Achaia, the brothers encouraged him and wrote to the disciples to welcome him. When he arrived, he greatly helped those who through grace had believed. So he picked up quite a following now in Corinth. And Paul refers to this, in, as we'll see in a moment. He refers to this. In fact, um, Paul makes references to Apollos when he later writes. You know what I reckon that is? So Paul, this explains Paul's reference to Apollos when he later writes to the Corinthians. So when you read 1 Corinthians chapter 1 and 2, you see this. And here's one of the references. There, there's several in the first few chapters where he refers to Apollos. He actually, it seems that he really admired Apollos. Seemed to be a very charismatic in the sense of attractive, cool, people love to listen to him. What, what I mean is this, that each one of you says, so now Paul's right, this is when he's writing to the Corinthians, he's writing back to them, I follow Paul, I follow Apollos, 
or I follow Cephas, that's the Apostle Peter, or I follow Christ. And so that's why Apollos gets a mention there. Paul left Corinth. He was in Corinth. He left. Apollos arrived. And he went, so Paul went to Ephesus. Now remember what Apollos knew when he went there and preached? He only knew about the baptism of John. So he kind of didn't have the full gospel yet. He only knew a bit of it. But yet he did, he did know about Jesus. So maybe he was there when he heard about Jesus, maybe he even heard Jesus, maybe, but he didn't get the significance of the cross. He didn't get the significance of Christian water baptism or baptism in the name of Jesus. Hmm. Well, Paul arrived in Ephesus. He found 12 believers by the river. And that's a significant thing too, because Jewish tradition was, if you didn't have a synagogue, which had to have a minimum of 12 men to constitute a synagogue, the, the unwritten rule was you went down to the river. You went down to the river on the Sabbath. And that's what happened. They went down to the river and Paul knew that. These, these now converted Jewish men knew that. And he found 12 believers. And it says in Acts chapter 19, verse 1, And it happened that while Apollos was at Corinth, Paul passed through the inland country and came to Ephesus. There he found some disciples. And he said to them, Did you receive the Holy Spirit when you believed? And they said, no, we've not even heard that there is a Holy Spirit. So you can understand Apollos has only given them what he knows. He was corrected later when Priscilla and Aquila would have said, oh, there's more to this, you know. There's, there was Jesus dying on the cross. There was an event that happened 50 days where, where, where Jesus was, was with us 40 days, sorry, 40 days. And then 10 days later, the day of Pentecost happened and we were filled with the Spirit and... It's extraordinary. And so off Apollos goes and Paul arrives, but these guys don't know the rest of the story yet. We've not even heard there is a Holy Spirit, they said. He said, into what then were you baptised? They said, into John's baptism. And Paul said, John baptised with the baptism of repentance, telling people to believe in the one who was to come and after him, that is Jesus. So next week, we're baptising four people. Isn't that exciting? <laughs> I reckon it's great. On Resurrection Sunday. And the thing that we stress with water baptism is water baptism doesn't save you. If, if you want to get, if you think becoming a Christian is a matter of being baptised, you'll discover that it just makes you wet. But if you want to get baptised because you've become a Christian, then that's a different, that's a different scenario. And one of the things that we do with all candidates as they're being baptised, and by the way, we take some time to prepare a candidate for baptism. And you might, and I've heard people say, well, they didn't in the book of Acts. I'm thinking, yeah, they had like 12 years of memorising the Pentateuch. These were Jewish people who understood baptism and ceremonial washing. And when baptism was preached, they got it. <laughs> when you preach it to a Aussie who doesn't know the Old Testament from the New Testament, or anything about Christianity, or even sometimes a, a child has come through the church and we just assume they know everything, uh, that can be a really dangerous thing. So that's why we take our baptism candidates through some pre-baptism classes so that they appreciate that water baptism doesn't save you. You get baptised because you've become a Christian. 
Water baptism is not the same as what your parents did to you when you were a baby. Water baptism is what you do because you have given your life to Christ. And it's a picture, it says in Romans chapter 6, of, of Christ living, dying and being buried, and being raised to new life. And it's a picture of what he will do in us too. We will die and we will raise, be raised with a new body. That's the picture of water baptism. So note their response. They've already been water baptised. And look what happened. On hearing this, they were baptised and when Paul had laid his hands on them, the Holy Spirit came on them and they began speaking in tongues and prophesying. There were about 12 men in all, a very significant number in the Jewish scheme of things. That was the minimum number for a, for a synagogue meeting. Okay, so that's the, th th these are the guys that founded the church at Ephesus. This is the foundation at the church at, at Ephesus. How theologically adept were they? Well, at this point, not very. But Paul then spends the next 18 months in Ephesus teaching, training these guys. It says he was daily in the hall of, of, a, of a scholar by the name of Tyrannus. So by that time, they picked up a few things. So now that's the foundation for the church at Ephesus. But what had happened over time, so that, that the, the Christian message spread, and we've seen that, that the, the original churches were household churches. So these men could have each been householders, maybe high status, maybe not so high status. Maybe they had many servants, maybe they didn't have any servants, although reading through Ephesians, it seems they all had servants because Paul tells them to be kind to their servants. So the situation was that, that other householders had come in that hadn't been exposed to Paul's teaching and they began to teach things that were foreign to the Christian message. And now we have Paul hearing about it and Paul is in prison in Rome. I mentioned that what happens is not detailed in the scripture, but what happens is we know that the book of Acts ends and then we have this scenario where Paul will appear before Caesar, but before that he's taken into the jail of the Praetorian Guard. He appears before Caesar sometime in 64 AD and Caesar has no time for him. I guess he's borne witness to Caesar and the reason I guess that is because of what Jesus said to Paul on the road to Damascus. You will bear testimony to me before kings. So I think Paul realised that his destiny was to meet Caesar and share the gospel with Caesar, who at this point was 30 uh, no, what would he, be? he would have been about 27 years of age, a young guy. Paul would have been probably early 60s. And so, that's, now that's interesting, because what happens there is Caesar sentences Paul to death. He's taken down to the port near the city of Rome, and he's beheaded. And scholars believe that in Revelation chapter 20, where John says, and some have been beheaded for the sake of Christ, that it's a tribute to the Apostle Paul. So here's the interesting thing. In 1 Timothy, Paul shares his testimony. If you were to go through the book of Acts, you would see that he shared his testimony, as it's recorded, on two occasions. 
and they're both slightly different. Have you ever shared your testimony and it's been different to the last time you shared your testimony? And now Paul shares his testimony again for the last time. I want you to notice how he shares his testimony. It's, it's starting in verse 12 of chapter 1. Notice how Paul shares it. I thank him who has given me strength, Christ Jesus our Lord. I want you to just consider that just for a moment. Christ Jesus our Lord. Christ is a title. Jesus is a description, saviour. And Lord is who he is. And it's interesting that in Paul's early epistles, he refers to him as Jesus Christ. As time goes on, he refers to him as Lord Jesus Christ. And as time comes to an end, he refers to him as Christ Jesus Lord. See what's happening in Paul's imagination. In Paul's, when I say imagination, I mean the, the, what, how Christ has filled his imagination. Christ has filled his vision. And now he's, he's clearly someone who's living to the glory of God. Because he judged me faithful, appointing me to his service, though formerly I was a blasphemer, persecutor, insolent, and an insolent opponent. But I received mercy because I had acted ignorantly in unbelief. I want you to consider what Paul's just said. Who is getting the glory? Can you see it's Jesus? Can you see he's, he's actually he's, he's extolled Jesus. Now he's actually saying, I was this, hmm. but because of Jesus, I'm now this. Amazing. I've heard some testimonies where if they get 30 minutes, 25 minutes is, is telling you what a rotten person they were in their past. And I actually don't like those testimonies. I mean, they're wonderful, aren't they? They're dramatic. But I'm thinking of the kid that's growing up in this church who's coming to church every Sunday, who's being raised in a Christian home, who's got mum and dad who love Jesus, and they hear a dramatic testimony of someone who's lived a lifestyle of sin and crime and hurting people, and then Christ gets them, and Christ can get them, and he can dramatically save them. But the best testimonies are probably some of the ones we're going to hear next Sunday. When someone says, oh, my mum and dad love Jesus, they taught me to love Jesus, and I actually love Jesus, and I want to get water baptised. think, ah, oh, that's pretty cool. That's a cool testimony. Did you notice Paul in his other testimonies in the book of Acts, he described how he persecuted people, how, and he, he labours that a bit. But in this one, he just fleetingly makes reference to it. And he points to Jesus and he says, And the grace of our Lord overflowed for me with the faith and love that are in Christ Jesus. The saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, of whom I am the foremost. Hmm. But I received mercy for this reason, that in me as the foremost, Jesus Christ might display his perfect patience as an example to those who were to believe in him for eternal life. Oh man, isn't that awesome? So here's the point I want you to see. Whenever Paul shared his testimony, he always adapted it for his audience. Did you notice in that testimony, he talks about how he was corrected, how he was this, but Jesus corrected him, how he was this and Jesus challenged him and he changed, how he was this and he was wrong, and Jesus 
corrected him toward the truth. Now think what Paul is wanting Timothy to do with these elders, these householders who aren't quite teaching the truth, whom Paul mentions in, in the, first, the opening verses of this chapter. So this is interesting. His testimony was adapted to his audience. It was still his testimony. There's nothing in that that's not true. Toward the end of Paul's life, we see just how focused he was on the Lordship of Christ. What a great way to live. <laughs> what a great way to live. Here's Paul. He knows he's going to die. We're going to read it in, in First and Second Timothy. In fact, I think my impression is that in First Timothy, he's got a little whiff of a hope. I'll appear before Caesar. He'll see, I don't want to hear this. Off with you. Not off with your head, just off with you. But then something happens, and my, my guess is that by 2 Timothy, Paul's been put in the Praetorian Guard, and he's probably gone, uh, that's not good. <laughs> or, or this doesn't usually end well. And it didn't end well. And that's when Paul says something like this, I'm ready to go. There's a crown laid up for me. I'm ready to go. And his focus isn't shaking a fist at Jesus, but worship of Jesus. Notice how he focuses on Christ. We'll read verse 16 again and we'll add in verse 17 so we can see it. But I received mercy for this reason, that in me, as the foremost sinner, Jesus Christ might display his perfect patience as an example to those who were to believe in him for eternal life. Now, listen to what he says. To the king of the ages, immortal, invisible, the only God, be honour and glory forever and ever. Amen. He breaks out into worship. He is so in love with Jesus at this time in his life, early to mid-60s. It's not like he becomes old and crusty like some. It's not like Christianity has become routine and boring for him. It's that Jesus has become all in all more encompassing Jesus is more than he ever dreamt, more than he ever imagined, able to fill his soul, satisfy the deepest longing of his heart. And he is overwhelmed with love and his appreciation for Christ and it flows out in worship. And now he's got a mission. His race is just about over. But he's got a young man by the name of Timothy that he's poured his heart into, poured his life into. What do we know about Timothy? We'll see in Paul's second epistle that he says to Timothy, don't be timid, don't be afraid, don't be shy. What does that tell us about Timothy? He probably had some emotional issues. He probably had all kinds of self-doubt. He probably felt inadequate. How many of us have ever felt that way? And here we see that he reminds Timothy of some personal prophecies that he received. Kim and I went to a, I'll say a hardware store and we bought, we bought something there and as we were, we were about to get it off the sales assistant, he just looked at us. An older guy just looked at us and I thought, give me the thing I just bought. Why are we... And he, it, was, it was one of those weird moments. And then he said this, thus says the Lord. And I'm thinking... Okay. <laughs> and he prophesied. That probably happens to you all the time. 
Doesn't happen to me all the time, but it happened that day. And this was a week ago. So it was interesting. It sounded like a genuine prophecy. There was nothing in it where we thought, oh, pfft. No, it sounded genuine, but it happened in a workshop. So this is what Paul is now going to say to Timothy. He's going to remind him of the personal prophecies that he's received. This charge I entrust to you, Timothy, my child, in accordance. Note this with the prophecies. Not the prophecy, the prophecies previously made about you, that by them you may wage the good warfare. Prophecies. Not prophecy, prophecies. I, I, I'm emphasising that so you can see something that you may just gloss over. There's three types of prophecy in Scripture. Three types. Who can think of one type? Yes, Tom. Predictive, Predictive prophecy. What's another type of prophecy? Directive. Directive prophecy. Thus says the Lord, do this. What's another type of prophecy? What was that, sorry? Admonishing. Admonishing. Did you mean foretelling? Yes, you did. And that's... <laughs> but it is. It is admonishing. Foretelling. So it's declaring the word of God. And when you actually consider the prophecies of Jeremiah, you realise how much of what Jeremiah said was actually simply a repeating of what had already been said before in the law of Moses. He was foretelling. There was certainly predictive and there was certainly directive in the prophet Jeremiah's ministry. So they're the three types when you consider those. Predictive. So some people think prophecy is always predicting the future. New Testament prophecy, in a predictive nature, apart from what Christ said in the Olivet Discourse, is actually not that common. Of course, the book of Revelation, which I believe written in AD 65, describes events that were about to unfold, particularly over the next five years from which it was written. And I think I could make that case and think I've made that case. And if you're interested in that case, you can grab my book, The Most Embarrassing Verse in the Bible. Predictive, foretelling and directive. If you ever get a directive word of prophecy, what should you do with it? Amanda, if you got a directive word of prophecy completely out of the blue, you didn't see it coming, you didn't expect it, you'd never even entered into your head what was being prophesied to you in a directive way, what would you do? You'd just talk to God about it, just lift it up there and see what it is. I mean, because the directive is actually to do something. Yep, it is. Would you? You'd spend a lot more time on it than I would. Um, just think it was dodgy. <laughs> I just think it was dodgy. Just do it. Oh, Lex. You've seen my office before the service. You might have to come and see me in my office again and we'll have to sort that theology out of yours. Here's what I would suggest, that if you receive a directive prophecy telling you to do something and it is, it's completely unforeseen, you, you have no, you, it never entered into your head, it wasn't already there, you weren't thinking about it, the Holy Spirit hadn't put it into your heart and you get a directive word like that, I would just go, thank you for that and ignore it. Just let it go. If the Holy Spirit begins to work that into your heart, then do something with it. Now, here's where I, I get really upset as a pastor is when I hear of some predatorial males who have gone up to women and prophesied that the Lord has spoken to them that they are to marry them. But it is dangerous, isn't it? it because that's not how this is supposed... This is, there is no evidence of that type of directive prophecy in the New Testament. 
That's why I highlighted in the text the prophecies that you received. Not the prophecy. What, if it was one word and you didn't see it coming, hmm, you, you should just file it away like Amanda said. Put it on the dodgy shelf like Amanda said. But if it's something you have been thinking about, if it's something that you've even been having dreams about, if it's something like that and someone says something about that, then that might be the Holy Spirit confirming what God's already been saying to you. So it seems that Timothy may have been emotionally vulnerable and he received several encouraging prophecies. And I don't think these prophecies would have told him anything that he actually didn't know, but they would have been encouraging for him. And I think sometimes some people have a personality uh, disposition where they, they self-doubt a lot. They, they're, not, they're not sure that they can do what God's calling them to do. And I think New Testament prophecy is 95.7% encouragement. Partly because that's what it, it doesn't say 95.7, but it says in 1 Corinthians 14 that, that New Testament prophecy encourages and builds up. Genuine personal prophecy is always, and this is what June was saying, is always confirmed by other sources. So if someone That's all we have time for tonight. If you'd like to obtain a CD copy or premium download of tonight's discussion, please go to our website, findingtruthmatters.org, and select Dear Timothy, Part 2, from our online store. As we've heard tonight, a genuine prophetic word is a great source of encouragement and confidence, but requires our discernment. More from Dr. Corbett next week with Part 3 of Dear Timothy, First of All, Pray. Dr. Corbett is pastor of Lagana Christian Church and president of ICI Theological College Australia. Thank you for joining us. We look forward to meeting with you again at the same time next week for another Finding Truth Matters.